Would you join me in prayer? Father, as has just been read, we ask that you would make us one, that we would walk in humility and in gentleness and patience, that we would bear with one another in love. For the Kindies and the Dehammers as they travel, we ask that you would bring them back safely to us this week. For those who are ill, those who are recovering or, or ailing, Father, would you heal them? Would you comfort them? Provide all that they need? And would you equip those who are caring for them um, to give them excellent care? Father, for our marriages, I ask that you would strengthen them that you would build them up, that where things are um, struggling, that you would renew and even rescue marriages that are in peril. Lord, we know that we love only because you first loved us. And I ask that by your spirit, you would enable us to love more deeply each day. For relationships that are strained or broken, would you restore, would you reconcile, would you mend? Would you bring forgiveness? For those who are lost, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, Lord, would you bring salvation to their souls and open our lips to, to tell them of you? I ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would grow in holiness, that we would grow in faith and in hope and in love. Would you build your church here and in every nation and would you send out workers to the harvest field, to every people group, that your glory would be spread to the corners of the earth. For we know that one day there will be worshipers from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and we so look forward to that day. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. Amen. Ken, would you come to, to bring the word to us this morning? Good morning. My wife and I lived overseas for many years, and it didn't take a real long time, even though we had certain television stations that we could get over there, that once we came back, it seems to us and it seemed to me that polarization was kind of the default setting here in America. Uh, it was almost as if uh, the concept or even the word unity was kind of a swear word. And you have to wonder sometimes why that is. I mean, if you stop and think about all the issues that polarize us, there's a lot. Uh, just recently, it's COVID and vaccines. It's conservative versus liberal. It's Democrat versus Republican. There are cultural issues. There are things on social media that are just thrown out there and people feel like they have to respond and the heat rises and the polarization increases. And the question sometimes is asked and can be asked and should be asked, can all of that affect us in the church? Such that unity is something that we don't even think about. It's kind of set off on the side. And my question to us this morning is, should that be the case? Is that the case? Actually, the passage that Dave just read to us in Ephesians 4 would say that unity is a requirement in the church. 
and we'd like to learn about that this morning. So if you turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, we'd like to study that this morning. Let me pray again, please. Father, thank you for this word that you've given to us today. And we ask, Father, that you would give us uh, your thoughts. We would understand your heart. And that whatever transformation needs to take place, your spirit would do it and we would submit to that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesus was truly an economic and religious center in Asia Minor at the time that Paul lived. A port city. It's located in present-day Turkey. And Paul was actually there serving for many, many years himself, such that his ministry extended all around the Asia Minor region as he sent disciples out to share the gospel with people. Uh, the letter... Uh, at least in terms of F.F. Bruce's comment about Ephesians, as opposed to Romans and other letters, is considered the essence of Paulinism. The essence of Paulinism. If you take the whole book and the main theme of Ephesians as itself, it would be this. As God's new people, transformed people, we should live out our privileged position with the power that is ours. Because of Christ's exaltation. So that's what the whole book is about. It's talking about our new unity, our new privileged position, both individually and corporately in Christ. And the power that God has given to us to lead a brand new life in this world, a transformed life in this world. And it's all because of the death and resurrection and specifically in Paul's, things, in Paul's mind in Ephesians, the exaltation of Jesus. Chapters 1 through 3. He praises God for our identity in Christ, both individually and corporately. And he reminds us that we are a new man or a new mankind in the church. That the barriers that separated Jews and Gentiles are broken down such that we are united together as one corporate body. He even reminds us by praying for us. Two specific times in Ephesians. Praying that these truths become more than just things we memorize. More than just Sunday school answers. But they sink down into our heart, into our mind, and they form and shape our thinking and our emotions and our decisions. And Paul prays for that. That those things become a reality for us on our everyday lives. When he comes to chapters 4, 5, and 6... Paul wants to apply this to our lives. And he uses the Greek verb walk five different times in, that, in those three chapters to remind us that we have a new walk. We're going to look at one of those today. But he, talks that, he says that we are not to walk as we used to walk. He says that we are to walk in love. He says that we are to walk in light. And he says that we are to walk in wisdom. To remind us of the ways in which we are to be transformed in this world and the corporate identity and the individual identity that we have can impact this world because of the transformation that God has given to us. When we come to chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, the main theme, the thing, the idea that I want you to take home with you. If you forget everything else I say, take this home and think about how this can apply. Paul wants us to walk worthy of the call to unity that we have in Christ. Walk worthy of the call to unity we have in Christ. Verse 1 is the key to this whole paragraph. Structurally, 
Paul takes verse 1, he says it, and then basically he goes beyond that, below that, and says, let's talk about how this works out in our daily life. Let's look back at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, he's in prison when he writes this. This is one of his four prison epistles. I implore you, I beg you, I beg you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called. Make the decision. I'm constantly, I'm doing this in such a way with an emphasis, I'm imploring you, I'm on my knees begging you. Remember the call that you have received in Christ. And think about keeping that. Walking in a way worthy of that. Make a decision to say yes. Yes, this is going to be my default setting. God has called me to this unity. And he's granted me this unity. And therefore, whatever is my responsibility toward that unity, I want to make that decision. So that's the verse. That's the verse. And now below that, he explains to us what that means in terms of working out for us. Interestingly, he says this unity is already a given for us. This is not something we create, folks. This is not something that we have to sort of make up. It is a unity that's been given to us, presented to us as a gift. Notice verses 4, 5, and 6. He says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what do you see in those verses? What do you sense in those verses? As Paul talks about this unity, I see the Trinity. You saw it too, didn't you? We talked about one Spirit. We talked about one Lord. And we talked about one God and Father. Those are givens. We don't change that. We don't make that up. We don't create that. That trinity, that triune reality that we believe in is more than just something we write on a doctrinal statement. More than something we teach in Sunday school. It is a part and parcel of our life. It's the reason why we have a unity in this fellowship, in this church, because the triune God is the basis of that. He is the unity of that. But it's not just there. It doesn't stop just with the Trinitarian realities. There's the gospel involved in this. There is one body, one church, most likely looking at the universal church of which you folks are a local expression. But he goes on and talks about the one uh, calling that we have in hope. We have one hope, a thing in the future that we're looking forward to, which is Jesus' return. We have one faith, this book presented to us as one faith. We have one baptism, probably not water baptism, but spirit baptism that has united us to Christ. And then we say, he says we have one Father who is over all sovereign, through all active, in all present with us. We have gospel realities. We have Trinitarian realities. This unity that is ours is not something we create, it's something we receive. It's something that is given to us as a gift. It's something that should always be in our thinking that God has united us, not only in this church locally, but to the whole church around the world. What a privilege and what a joy that is 
to be able to look at that and understand that and sense that. But we do have a responsibility with regard to that. We need to walk worthy of that calling toward that unity, the unity that he has given to us. We need to align our lives that way. And the first thing that we do, Paul says, in verses 2 and 3, is there are certain virtues. There are certain virtues that have, are, are expected from us, and these virtues demonstrate that unity. They show that unity to the world. They support the unity, and as it were, they protect the unity that God has given to us. Let's look and see what those virtues are. Chapter 4, verse 2. He says, with all humility, with all humility, complete humility and gentleness or meekness. So this is associated with our walk. If our walk is going to be worthy, these are the virtues that have to be joined with us. These are the ways and thinking that we need to bring to the table as we think about unity. What does humility mean? Humility is easily described. You watch me for just a minute. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this about unity, that when we think about ourselves and we think about our position, Paul says, my position is here. And where are you? Above him. Above him. We don't have to worry about position battles. We don't have to worry about who's first or second or third or fourth. Paul would say we're last. In Philippians chapter 2, he has three examples, not just one. He has Jesus, supreme example, who gave up his position in heaven to come down and become a servant and to die on the cross, living for other people, but he also had Timothy and Epaphroditus in that chapter as examples of humility. So if we want to talk about unity, we want to talk about a virtue. The first virtue is we live for others. We think about others. We're always doing everything for others. We're always putting ourselves in the low rung. We're serving others. And we also do that, he says, with gentleness or meekness. There's no force. There's no push. There's no anger. There's no power. There is gentleness. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 6 and in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in 1 Peter chapter 3. All of them talking about ministry. We're supposed to do church discipline with gentleness. We're supposed to teach with gentleness. We're supposed to evangelize and give our apologetic with gentleness, with meekness. But he doesn't stop there. Notice he goes on. He says this, with patience. If you have the King James, that word would be long-suffering. We deal with pardon the expression, those people that tend to be irritable. Those these are all people-related, by the way. The word patience is people-related. The word endurance is related to situations. So patience is people. Irritable, exasperating, foolish, people who insult us. Those people. We don't respond with anger. We don't respond with frustration. We don't, whatever word we might, might use to cover over what is not patient. But we put up with it, we endure it. The patience allows us to live in unity with one another. Those individuals, those people that tend to get under our skin, we respond as God himself would respond. He doesn't stop there. 
he continues to go on. He says, showing tolerance for one another in love. We put up with, we put up with one another because we love them, because he loved us. We put up with one another. That's how we walk, worthy of the calling to unity. And he concludes his list here. He says this, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. Being diligent. The verb there is the same verb used in 2 Timothy 2.15 about striving to show yourself a workman. We put all of our effort, all of our work in trying to keep the unity. Why? Because it's given to us. It's not something we make. It's not something we create. It's given to us as a gift and God says protect it, support it. And these virtues are significantly important for us. They help to support, they help to show the world, to show the world what true unity is. And believe me, it doesn't take a lot to see that if these virtues are abundant in our midst, the world will notice because we will be holy. What's the definition of holy for us folks? Different. Different. We will respond differently. So we have this unity that's given to us. It's founded on this doctrinal basis. It's founded on Trinitarian and gospel truths. We have this unity that is protected and supported and demonstrated and shown by the virtues that Paul lists here for us. Humility, other-centered, gentleness, not forcing people. Tolerating, putting up with one another, patient, putting up with those people that are exasperating and insulting. He spends the vast majority of his time, however, talking about how this unity can grow. Kind of an interesting thought. This unity can be developed. This unity can be made more strong, as it were, in our midst. And what's interesting is God says, Paul says here, that it's because of the gifts that God has given to us and the proper gifts and use of those gifts in the midst of the fellowship that develops this unity. Let's read verses 7 to 16. But to each one of us is given, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The first word grace is charis, from where you might hear the word charismatic today. But the next word, Christ's gift, is actually what we would think of as a present. He has given gifts as a result of his exaltation. We're not going to read 8, 9, and 10. He came down to this earth. He descended into the bowels of the earth when he was buried. And yet he has ascended to heaven, raised up to seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he has given the church gifts as a result of his exaltation. In fulfillment of Psalm 68, notice what those gifts are. Verse 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So he's primarily focusing in terms of the gifts on the gifted people that God has given to the church. I think he's looking at universally the church as a whole. Because not every church had an apostle. Not every church had a prophet. But when we think about apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, 
All of these gifted individuals that God has given to us is for the development of the unity, the development of the body, the development of the church. The apostles and prophets we know from this very book. In Ephesians 2.20 and 3.5, we're talking about those people that have passed off the scene. Those people that directly received the word of God from God and presented that word to the world. The apostles that were the foundation of the church, he says in 2.20 and 3.5. The people like Paul, like the twelve who were the foundation of the church. The evangelists are the people that God specifically gifts. Gives them opportunities to share the gospel with people. And they are specifically effective in doing that. And then pastor-teacher. Pastors-teachers. It's debatable whether this is one person, pastor-teacher, or two different people, pastors and teachers. And we can debate that on the Greek grammar of that and what that means. But suffice to say, there is these individuals who do what? What do the pastor teachers do? They are the ones who lead. They are the ones who teach. They are the ones who feed. They are the ones who protect. These are the leaders, the men who do the ministry of the word. These are the gifts that God has given for the development of the body, for the strengthening and manifestation of this unity to the world. Notice what the purpose is. Verse 12. Some translations will say almost the, the same preposition. For the equipping of the saints. For the work of the service. For the building up of the body of Christ. But in Greek here, there are two prepositions and one other separate preposition. The first preposition. The first one. For the equipping of the saints. That's the ministry of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their ministry is to equip the people who stand at this pulpit, your pastor as he stands at this pulpit, his function, his goal, his ministry is to equip you. To bring all of you, that word equip there is to bring people or bring things to usefulness. It's used for, used for uh, fixing a net that would be used then that could go out and capture fish. He is training you, equipping you, to make you useful, to bring you to a position where you can do the following. Notice, for the equipping of the saints, so that they might do the work of service with the goal, the end goal, the edification of the body of Christ. The edification, the building up, Making us into a building, as it were. The gifts that God has given. These people that God has given and placed in position above you. Given us this book, Apostles and Prophets Ministry. The evangelists, the pastor teachers in your midst. Equipping you. Equipping you. Making you proper. Making you ready to serve. So that you can do what? Do the work of the ministry. The work of of the ministry and that work of the ministry is ultimately the edification of the body of Christ he goes on to talk about really what that means in terms of its final position there's a timing of this he says this in verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
There's that word unity again. So that this unity that God has given us in our faith, there's going to be an, uh, an extension of that. We're going to grow into that. The knowledge of the Son of God, we know deeper who Jesus is. The process of building one another up, the edification of the body of Christ is to point us more toward, toward Christ's likeness and understanding of who he is. He continues on. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the ministry, the work of ministry, that means by which we put effort and time and sweat and tears into ministry to build up the body of Christ is that we would grow into Christ's likeness both in terms of knowledge as well as character. That we would be built up in our unity and our unity would be even stronger. That's the timing. That's the goal of what the ministry is to be for us. Notice also verses 14 and 15. As a result of this, when we are edified together as the body of Christ, we will no longer be children. After all, we're now the fullness, the fullness of manhood. We're the fullness of Christ. We are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Whatever wind blows through the church, we go in that direction. It goes this way. We go that way. No, we're stable. When these winds blow through, they don't affect us. By the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming kind of exposes, as it were, what this false teaching is all about. It's to trick us. It's to pull us away from the fullness in Christ. It's to direct us away from other things. It's to put us up into things that are really not our emphases. Instead, what we are to do, because we are now equipped for ministry, we speak the truth in love. So that's the antidote. That's the antidote to the teaching that rumbles through the church. Accepting the fact that the teachings like this rumble through the church and potentially can affect us in a negative way. In fact, can break our unity. Paul says we don't want to be that way. Allow these men and individuals to prepare us, to equip us, and then ministering to one another, we are being careful to watch that the false teaching does not enter into the church and break up our unity. And I would simply add a parenthesis here and not say anything more. Those things I said at the beginning, COVID, vaccines, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, those are things. Those are things that can break our unity and we need to have proper understanding of the degree of importance of those versus the degree of importance of the Trinitarian and gospel unity that is ours. He concludes this paragraph by saying, as we speak the truth in love to one another, we are growing up, we are growing up into him in every single aspect. Notice what he says in verse 16, the whole body being fitted and held together for what every joint supplies, the working of each individual part through the spirit of God causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's a lot of words to basically say this. There are individuals that God has given to this fellowship, to the world, to the universal church. Those people's goal, those people's ministry is to equip, 
to make us ready, to make us prepared, to make us fit for ministry. We go, all of us go, and do the work of ministry amongst ourselves. And the goal is that the body of Christ be built up. Built up so it's strong, it's Christ-like, the unity is strong. We are mature, such that when false teaching comes through, potentially dissolving and breaking and affecting our unity, we stand against it, we speak the truth in love, we're ministering to one another like a body, all of the ligaments, all of the joints, working together in perfect unity so that we are grown up and we stand as a church so that this church, Grace Bible Church, stands in Granville as a witness to this community. So what does that mean for us today? When we think about application, what are some things that we can say? For me, number one, the thing that stands out out of this whole passage is to recognize that we need to protect the unity that is ours. It's not something we create. I want to remind you of this again. It is not something we need to create. It is yours. It's given to you. It is a gift. But you need to protect it. You need to do everything necessary to ensure that that unity is not broken. It's been given by Christ. It's gospel-based. It is fueled by that. So value that unity. Lift that unity up high. Way above all of those things that I mentioned at the very beginning of this sermon. Far above those things. Those things should be dwarfed by the unity that God has given to us. Do not allow that unity to be redefined, set aside, or usurped by some hot issue out there. Now, all of a sudden, you all start talking about it and thinking about it, and everybody starts taking sides, and the polarization sets in, and the unity disappears. Value and protect the unity that is given to us based on Trinitarian and gospel truth. Secondly, we need to maintain that unity virtuously. Virtuously. We talked about humility and grace, gentleness and patience and all of those things involved. That is necessary. That accompanies this worthy walk. That defines and shows this worthy walk. Without the virtues, without the virtues, this unity is not manifested to the world. It's the virtues that the, unit, that the world sees. Thirdly, I don't think I have to say this here, but I'll say it anyway. Do not dismiss, dismiss doctrine. Do not sort of think that doctrine is unimportant. It is. It is. This unity is based on doctrinal truths. And Paul very clearly indicates in verses 14 and 15 that false teaching, trickery, and, and conniving, and scheming by men as they seek to spread amongst us false, different teaching will break your unity will break your unity and prevent you from becoming mature. Do not dismiss doctrine and do not accept it being, becoming less and less and less important so that we can do the more important things like social justice and all the other things out there in the world. It's how we grow strong and it's how we protect. So the goal is maturity and true godliness. Lastly, Gifts are important. Understanding the gifts that God has given to all of us, specifically to the individuals that God places in the word ministry role of equipping us for the work of the ministry, but recognize this. Their fruit is more important than the gifts. I know 
and have lived through many churches that debate the gifts and talk about the gifts and argue about the gifts and never think about what the gifts are really meant to do, which is what? Build up the body of Christ. Encourage and strengthen the body of Christ to make us an effective tool in God's hands. We already read about Jesus in John 17. Jesus prayed for us to have unity. David, in Psalm 133, said that unity is a desire of God. It is something beautiful and special in God's eyes. So we have Jesus on this. We have David on this. We now have Paul on this. So unity is not a small word. It's not a swear word. It's the way that we bless it's the way that we challenge. It's the way that we show the world what God desires and we show the world what God has done and is doing and is creating in the body of Christ. And without that unity, without the love in John 13 and the unity in John 17, I will humbly suggest to you that our witness to the world is marred and maybe even brought down to zero because the world would look at us and say there's no difference there's no difference you guys are just like us may it not be said in this church may it not be said in churches all around America you know unity that's really a swear word around here we don't use that term may we walk in a way worthy of the calling to unity that God has given to us let's pray Father thank you for Ephesians 4 and what it teaches us. I pray, Father, that you would give us grace to apply and understand this truth clearly and how it works out in our daily lives. May we give credence to the doctrinal basis. May we give credence to the virtues necessary. May we thank you and be grateful, Father, for the ministry in our midst that allows us to be equipped, that we might do the work of the ministry, and that our church, this church, might be edified and grow in Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.